Hi, I'm Dr. Pam Peek, and welcome to episode 327 of Her, the podcast where you're going to hear the naked truth about her mind, her body, her life, uh, and her love story about all things furry creatures. Yes, this is going to be very cool. Now, before we begin, just know that this episode is made possible by our wonderful friends at Smarty Pants Women's Vitamins, the delicious once-a-day gummies that contain all of the essential vitamins, minerals, and omega oils customized just for women. To learn more, hop on over to smartypantsvitamins.com. All right, now here's your first reminder to click on iTunes after this episode to rate and review the show because I love your feedback. Just love it. All right, it's time for Her. Her, the podcast. The naked truth about women. Her mind, her body, her life. It's all about Her. Well, as so many of you know out there in the Her podcast land, I just love cruising through the Wall Street Journal. As you know, I have a lot of their columnists as regulars on our podcast, and there's always something awesome there. And then what caught my eye was when I saw a review of a brand new book. And the book is entitled, When Harry Met Minnie. Okay, you got my attention. What's this about? And then lo and behold, I find out that the author is CBS correspondent Martha Teichner. Okay, I am a total fangirl, shameless, but here we are. And what? What is she doing writing a book like this? This is amazing. And so we are so absolutely honored and pleased to have Martha on with us. Let me tell you a little bit about Martha. She's been a correspondent for CBS Sunday Morning since December of 1993. Hello, Sustainability. Um, where she's equally adept at covering major national and international breaking news stories. Um, you know, she joined CBS News in 1977 and has earned multiple national awards for her original reporting, including, get this, 12 Emmy Awards and five James Beard Foundation Awards. I could go on, but all I can say is that I'm ridiculously excited about talking to Martha. Martha, welcome to the Her Podcast. Thank you. With a buildup like that, um, I'm, I'm it, it, awestruck. <laughs> well, I got the money uh, in the mail, so thank you very much. <laughs> <laughs> oh, no, grafted corruption. What can I say? Well, so here's this amazing book. And by the way, everyone out there, all you have to do is Google um, when Harry met Minnie and um, check out some of the wonderful videos that have now appeared. Uh, the one that was my favorite was the one that you did for CBS News. And it was so, so lovely. So here you are, you know, a major news correspondent. Why did you write this book? Well, I wrote it really for myself not really necessarily thinking so much about the public uh, till later, really. Um, I wrote it because uh, all the events the, uh, that, that I talk about in the book um, were very meaningful to me. And um, in a way, it was so that I wouldn't forget them, 
so that I could keep on living the story even after it was over. And um, each time I sat down to write, it was a chance to re-immerse myself in the story and get when I got to the concentration level I needed to reach in order to write, um, it was like living in a playback in a in a kind of a film of all those events and what they meant to me and the memory and so on and so forth. And really, that's why I wrote it. But it also occurred to me uh, as as time went on during the time I actually lived the events that it was a good story and it was about friendship and it was about loss and it was about animals and it was about New York and uh it it um it brought together a lot of things that that um were very meaningful to me and I thought maybe to other people as well love life and loss i saw it as um a major league love story at multiple levels you know, obviously the simplest part is, and you'll tell the story, um, when Harry met Minnie. Um, but then there was the friendship that you made um, when Harry came into your life. There was the love between you and um, so many of your furry creatures. Um, and there was the love of a city. There was a love of friends who took care of someone who was ill. It just went on and on. It was like layers upon layers. And I just found myself lost in that. So just snapshot, what was the story when Harry met Minnie? Just at the baseline for the two, you know, the kind of dog, um, your wonderful furry family member. I've had bull terriers since 1987 over the course of, I'm on... Uh, I have Bull Terrier number six right now, and I've always loved the breed. And uh, I had lost one of my dogs, and my other dog was pining for him and uh, really was morose and remained in mourning. And I wanted a companion for her after losing her other companion. And I finally convinced her to go with me to the Union Square Farmers Market in New York City on Saturday. On the, I always go on Saturdays. And finally, after much struggling, I convinced her to go start going with me again. And one particular Saturday, July 23, 2016, I went to the Farmers Market. Minnie went with me. And we were standing around talking to um, a couple who had another bull terrier named Sonny and a couple of other people. And at just that particular moment, I saw somebody out of the corner of my eye with his golden retriever, somebody that I had known as an acquaintance a couple of years before um, from walking along the Hudson River on the other side of Manhattan. I hadn't seen him in a, a year or two because he had moved to another part of the city. And uh, there he was suddenly. And he looked at me. I looked at him. He came over and he said, well, where's Goose? That was the dog who had died. And I told him uh, that Goose had died and, and that, that Minnie was despondent and that I had been searching unsuccessfully for a, a, a companion for her, an older male bull terrier. Uh, because she didn't like puppies and she was getting on. And um, he said, well, remember I told you about my friend Carol? Um, and I, you know, I really didn't re quite remember. And slowly things started coming back to me. And he said, remember I took this picture? He whipped out his phone and showed me a picture of Minnie and Goose together and along the river 
Um, uh, he said, I took that picture to send to Carol, who has a bull terrier named Harry. And slowly it started coming back. And he said, well, she has liver cancer. She's dying. And um, she has no one, uh, no one who she thought she could rely on once Harry. He's 11 and a half. He's got some issues. Uh, but he's really sweet. And nobody wants him. And she's been told she'll probably have to put him down just because she's dying. Would you take him? And I kind of stood there. It was sort of like little electrical pulses going through me at the moment, <laughs> thinking, whoa, something big is happening here. What's going on? And and I kind of stood there paralyzed for a second and then out bubbled, well, if, they, if the two dogs get along, maybe. And so that set in motion everything in the book. Uh, and the following Saturday, Stevens Miller Siegel, who happened to be the person with that I ran into, and I didn't even know his name till then. He didn't know my name till then. We knew each other's dogs' names, which is typical um, in New York dog walking circles. Um, we introduced ourselves. Stephen set in motion contacting Carol and getting her on board. This is a woman named Carol Fertig, who was a world-class designer, and she designed clothes, she designed furniture, she designed jewelry, she designed home accessories, you name it, you name it, she had done it, and she had um, done either brand strategy or, or had designed for every um, name that you see uh, in, I always use the example of if you're looking through Vogue or you're looking through Vanity Fair and you're desperately trying to page through the 35, 40 pages till the table of contents finally appears, those ads for luxury brands, those are the people she worked for. And Harry Winston Jewelers and Michael Kors and Calvin Klein and, I mean, you name it. And um, anyway, she was a fascinating person who also had a love for bull terriers. And the following Saturday, after the meeting in the farmer's market, Stephen, who had a car, brought Harry, Carol and Harry over to my apartment. And we sat outside on the stoop with Harry and Minnie um, being introduced to one another. And that was did not go entirely well. Um, they ignored each other. <laughs> Minnie came out. Right. Minnie was quite a diva. She had been a rescue dog who was the most miserable, skinny, skeletal thing you ever saw. And then she blossomed. And she became, I always describe her as, some, as someone who thought she was a glamorous movie star or maybe a princess. And, and um, she wore jewel collars and she seemed to flaunt it, um, all her jewels and so on and so forth, and loved to be um, quite a princess. And I always said that um, as for her thinking of herself as an actress, her role model was Grace Kelly, but on the other hand, um, and, and being a princess, on the other hand, where jewels were concerned, her role model was Elizabeth Taylor. So, I mean, that, that gives you a, a glimmer of her personality as a dog. and uh, That's our girl. That's our yeah. girl. Well, she, Let's do it. She came out the front door, took one look at Harry, and flopped herself around so that she put her behind in his face. 
and nice, ignored nice. him. He, on the other hand, <laughs> paid no attention to her whatsoever and tried to rummage in my pocket for the bag of treats I had there. So it went like that on the first gather- or, uh, encounter. And um, on the other hand, Stephen and Carol and I had a really wonderful talk, and I was really worried in advance, not just about whether the dogs would get along, but also what was I walking into with this woman who was dying? And would would it be just, um, you know, sort of an acting job on my part just to sit there with someone who was obviously dying, or 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 would I find that I could have fun with her, that I could laugh with her, that that it was like meeting someone who was living? And it turned out to be the latter, and and that was a very very important thing, and it was so characteristic of Carol that um, she lived every second of the time she had as well as she could and did not dwell on her death. Uh, and she was really more concerned about about finding a way to, to rehome Harry, as she put it, uh, than she was about herself. And we had a, a wonderful time for several months. It was tremendous fun to know her. There was the serious part. There was the 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 dark cloud of her death but this was someone who still knew how to laugh and still knew how to carry on a conversation and live while dying and i i i really appreciated that and had huge admiration for her because of that i just love that she lived while dying you know it's as a physician One of the first things I discovered years ago was that it was a myth that the mass majority of people who are dying a death that is prolonged somewhat because of disease, not something obviously instantaneous, that they're all morose, that they don't laugh, and that the whole thing is just one big depressing mess. And it turns out the mass majority of them do not do that at all, that they each have this really kind of robust way of wrapping their head around what is what is taking place with them. It's, it's like a settling. It's like you understand. You see what you can see. And every day is another challenge for adapting and adjusting. And I, that's what I got out of what was happening with you and that relationship with Carol. And I'm sure it made, as you said, an incredible impact on you. It did, definitely. And, and you know, in all of it, I looked at her situation. I looked at my situation. Um, I'm an older, single female uh, with no children and very few family members. I was an only child, and Carol was an older, single female with tons of friends, the family that she essentially created for herself. But I looked at her situation where she was desperate to find a home for Harry before she died because that would give her the peace of mind she needed to go. And I thought, there but for the grace of God is me. Will there be a Martha around for Martha should that time come at some point? And it just looking at her by looking at myself in the mirror in a, in a, in a funny way was just 
Um, it was so profoundly instructive to me to watch her and to listen to her and to to appreciate um, how she went about dying and and again living while dying. Well, you know, you were a gift to her, no no question, but she was a gift to you Absolutely. because here you are looking in a mirror and the thing that you also brought up was the fact that um there was a community of people who loved her and mm -hmm. and took care of her and and what was there a name for them um i those three or four women there there were uh, i called them uh, well she had a large circle of friends carol had yes. a, an amazing gift for friendship but among that that circle there were uh, a group of women in her building uh, that were part of a kind of a half-baked mahjong group. Um, they they uh, didn't really know how to play mahjong. They took a field trip to the Jewish Museum because there was a mahjong exhibit there, and so on. They thought, well, maybe they could learn from a book, and they didn't really. And the mother of one of the members flew in to try to teach them how, and so and it it kind of. It was fun, and it, it, they used it as a way to all get together and have dinners and go on little field trips to cosmetic departments and so on and so forth and dress up and make costumes and do all kinds of stuff that, that were only tangentially related to Mahjong. And of that Mahjong group, there were three women, um, primarily a woman named Lissa, and then there was Kate, and there was Cecilia. And when Carol was diagnosed with terminal cancer, they took it upon themselves to care for everything she needed. If somebody needed to walk Harry, they would organize walking Harry. They would walk. Cecilia was involved with walking Harry, even though she was afraid of dogs. And um, Lissa went to doctor's appointments, and Kate got or the apartment all organized and cleaned and food and, and it, whatever they needed to do to fight the medical establishment to do you know the, the anything that needed to be done for Carol's welfare they took care of it 24/7 and i called them in the book the three graces and, and you know the, there's the literary reference to the three graces and the you know the music and so on and so forth and um but they to me embodied grace and it wasn't the exact analogy to the the mythological three graces, but they represented to me the multidimensional three graces of Carol's life. And they were there for everything she needed. And I really, I got to know two of them. I, I got to know Lissa very well. I got to know Kate somewhat. I didn't really get to know Cecilia, but... Without those three women, I don't know what Carol would have done. They were prepared to do anything for her. Interesting. And and, and indeed, they did. Um, and how, how soon was it that Carol passed away after you met her? I met her on July 30th, uh, 2016. She died on December 7th, 2016. I see. So it... it it was long enough to have an incredible impact, and but it was not a long time. You know, well, at you the know, end of the day, when I started out, I thought, okay, well, um, you know, I'm going to meet Carol. We're going to see if the dogs get along, and we had several benchmarks for that. And I'm going to 
it's a transaction about a dog. And it, yes, it's it's sad. Carol's dying, and so on and so forth. But pretty soon, I'll have a second dog to keep mini company if they get along. Well, it very rapidly became something more prolonged, um, mainly because Carol said to me, I want to keep Harry until the very last minute. Oh, okay, so it's not really a transaction about a dog right away. And I had thought it would be, you know, sort of three, four weeks and that was it. But what happened, happened in that time period between... July 30th and December 7th, was that um, everything became heightened, everything became intensified, because when you only have a few months to be friends, when you what you have in common is the dedication to the dog um, and trying to find a way to make a home for him and to make it work and so on, it, it, it becomes so much bigger and and more colorful, and it's like hyper-saturated color because you don't have much time and you have to cram what could have been decades of friendship into a few months, and and it it takes on tremendous meaning. You know, it's interesting, and, and as um, many of my colleagues uh, work in what we call palliative care in hospice, uh, and one of the things you find is that everything is stripped away. It's just stripped away. There's no, you know, pretenses. Nobody wants to name drop and nobody, nobody cares. You're there. You're, you're naked to the world spiritually, uh, let alone physically and mentally. Um, and it, it, it's a, you're absolutely right. It's a deeper, richer experience minus any of the usual kind of off times fear-driven facades like what will they think and you know am i okay and it's like no i'm i'm just here you know love it or or not you know i mean this is this is me god bless and uh and we're moving along here and i just love the way you um it's a concentrated friendship it was concentrated within the space of x number of months and well, that's a very good word for it because it really it had to be. Yeah, yeah, and and so you know, <laughs> I have to laugh because um, as everyone out there in the her podcast land knows, I have my two beloved canines, um, Max and Five O. Five O is like Hawaii Five O. It stands for cop, and they both <laughs> are uh, purebred black. Uh, German shepherds. They're pure black. So they look like two wolves. Um, and the happy news is nobody bothers me when I walk them. <laughs> um, <yeah. laughs> oh, no, no, no. But you know what's interesting? Th- these incredible, you know, furry family members become gateways to friendships. They become gateways to so much in our life. You know, I never, you know, maybe I'm an absolute nature lover. I'm an outdoor-aholic and an outdoor athlete. So, you know, I I pay attention to things like that cardinal in the tree and, you know, back and forth. But somehow, Max, the younger one, when he sticks his nose in bushes and stuff and leaves what I love to call pea mail, um, you know, and and reads some pea mail too, um, it suddenly that bush just lights up. It's it's super green. It's super amazing. And how does that happen? Um, it's a gateway into um, realities that we uh, oftentimes maybe not pay enough attention to. We're not as mindful. Um, and getting back to the magnificent 
you know, uh, uh, you know, animals in your life, uh, here they were, um, gifting you with love, uh, companionship. And what I also love about the book is it was real because the ending is not what people expect. So go for it. Oh no, it certainly wasn't. Um, well, do you want me to tell what happened toward the end or, or not, or leave that? Okay, so you potential readers out there, if you think what we've been talking about is rich and deep, y'all haven't heard anything yet. And what I highly recommend is you is you read, you know, uh, an ending and, and a story um, that is going to have a little twists and turns here uh, that will help guide you um, to understanding about this whole issue of life, love, and loss, which which I just love. You know, wouldn't you agree that dogs and cats, I suppose, and all wonderful animals, but let's just stick with dogs right now, that they're only on this planet for a short period of time. What's the usual lifespan um, of your terrier? A bull terrier is sort of on borrowed time after the age of 13. Um, I've had one that lived to be 14 and a half. Many, um, unfortunately, I had to have put down on November 9th, um, 2020. Um, she had to have been between 15 and 16, which is just an amazing long life for a bull terrier. Harry lived to be not quite 13. Oh, yeah, and she liked uh, uh, younger men, too, um, which is cool. Oh, she did. Oh, come, come on right. now, little cougar. You know, and there there right. we are. But um, the reason why I bring that up is we all know as family members of these wonderful dogs that they're not here forever. And um, what they have taught me uh, in, in ways that I just can't even begin to verbalize well enough is uh, how to appreciate absolutely every day, to cherish every day. Because honestly, you just don't know. You just don't know. And it d does that make sense? That's you know, true. one of my favorite, uh, you know, when I was going through medical school, I read a lot of uh, Elizabeth Kubler-Ross, who uh, went on, as you know, to become probably one of the greatest names in um, the psychology of grief, just in general, just life and everything, but especially grief. There's this one quote from her that I just... I, I keep with me all the time. It is, it is only when we truly know and understand that we have a limited time on earth and that we have no way of knowing when our time is up that we begin to live each day to the fullest as if it were the only one we had. Well, that strikes me as being absolutely true. And, and again, when we go back to that concentrated nature of the friendship that, that I experienced uh, with Carol um, in the months before she died. It came home to me all the time. It just was, uh, it was rich time. And it's funny, I always, um, I guess some people when they live their lives, they make it, they distinguish between the time they spend working and the time that's their own personal life. And um, I always try to live every day of my work life as if it could be the last, but also to extract every bit of intense 
um, livability out of it, if you will, um, because of the fact that that um, it is a day in my life. It isn't just a work day. I like to put as much in and take as much out as I know how to do because, again, it, each day I'm working is a day in my life. And I have a hard time distinguishing, drawing a line between my work life and my personal life because of the fact that um, that I do that, and also that you know I'm fortunate enough to have a very very interesting work life. But um, I do think that part of it has to do with taking possession of your life and investing yourself in that time. I love that. I absolutely love that. You know, I've, I've got to I got to ask you this question. You have been doing this incredible work interviewing icons globally uh, for years and years, decades. If, if someone were to ask you, what is really the secret sauce, a little bit of the secret sauce um, that helps explain your success for so long? Because we're so used to, as you're well aware by now, you know, the sort of a revolving door. People are in, people are out, and especially in the multimedia world. But here you are um, after all these years. Uh, I, I know several of my team members asked me to please you know, get some insights from you about this. And by the way, they're all women, and they were wondering, you know, how you did it. Well, thank you. Uh, I think about that quite a bit, um, especially at this end of my career. Um, I'm 73, and I'm still here. But number one, I continue to be curious. I have never stopped being curious. Um, I love going out and learning and discovering and trying to extract from whatever story I'm covering what I think will satisfy my own curiosity and will also satisfy the curiosity of the people I will be doing the stories for, the people who are the audience of Sunday morning. And so the curiosity is a big factor. Work, the ability and the love of working is part of it. I really enjoy working. I've always enjoyed working. I uh, don't live to retire. I live to work. And uh, whether it's writing a book working or whether it's going out and doing the stories I do, I find huge satisfaction and structure and growth from working. And the other part of it, I think, is stamina. I, I've been blessed with considerable stamina. And I think that um, that explains a lot because that's given me the essentially the, the the structure. I can rely on my stamina to keep me going, and um, I'm very grateful for that part of my life. Um, and those are probably the three biggies um, that I can think of. The other thing, you know, it's funny when I started out, I was in that time period when women were um, really breaking down barriers. I can't say that I was the first to do very many things, although it's certainly in my career I have been the first at times to do things. They weren't like, I wasn't the first woman correspondent at CBS News, but I was one of the first women war correspondents at CBS News. Um, I broke down barriers 
by, I believed, letting the work talk. And there were terrible times. There were things that were done to me and, you know, uh, everything from sexism to sexual harassment and so on along the way. But I was determined to endure. And in a funny way, now at the back end of my career, that idea of enduring is just as, as important. And it's very important to me that that people see me out there on television all the time at 73, still being taken seriously, still competing successfully, and still telling stories. I like to tell stories. And people who are much younger than I am have somehow accepted me telling them stories. And I think that that broadens the concept of of women's acceptance and that, again, the work does the talking. You said something quite fascinating that has really resonated in a big way, and that is young women. And you brought in this intergenerational issue. And what's fascinating is a lot of people think that, you know, by seeing a woman of your stature, your many years of experience and expertise, um, still up there rocking and rolling, you know, doing the stories, uh, being there on Sundays, et cetera, et cetera, you know, as something that would really motivate and inspire women of your own age or within a, you know, a, a generation around there. It turns out we underestimated how much younger women, and I'm talking about anything from, you know, anybody who's watching, you know, national uh, television, teens, 20s, 30s, even 40s, who want inspiration. You know what they want? They want hope. This is what I've heard constantly. They want hope. They want to know that you could keep kicking ass and being badass. I'm just going to put it out there you know, throughout your entire life that, you know, that you're not just, uh, you know, uh, some unique, you know, unicorn, that this is a real possibility that you can continuously reinvent yourself, refine yourself. Um, I personally don't like the word retire, have no idea what it means. Um, I like the word refire. Okay, so you just keep refueling and refiring and making it even better and enhancing and, and growing the passion that kept this whole thing going in the first place. Um, but younger women are very impressed with people like you, um, Martha, in a big way. And I, and I think it surprises a lot of women um, to know that they have touched women like that. Well, that, what do you think of that? that, that I'm, I'm touched that that's the case. I hope that I can be an example. Um, the uh, I work, most of the people I work with are less than half my age. And there you go. many of them are, are women. And um, I like the people I work with. And some of them, I feel that I can impart some of what I know to them, that I can help them develop their skills and so on and so forth. But I go at it with the, uh, the approach uh, that I am um, doing everything I can to make them stronger and better at what they do, and I like them. And um, it's, it, it's fun to go out and work with, with the people I work with. And 
even in COVID, it's it's uh, the contact I have is satisfying, although not as satisfying as in person. More we're beginning to you know creep back out of our holes now. But uh, I enjoy all those women, and if if I've always tried to be an example again the of the work doing the talking that that um I'm not out um sort of grandstanding that I'm doing my job in a way that that creates opportunity for other women and expands the horizon to the best of my ability and if and if that inspires younger women both as professionals and in the audience, that's a wonderful thing. And that's a barrier to be broken down again at this end of my career, just as there were barriers at the beginning. Well, I, you know, did any of this with Me Too and all the rest of it surprise you? I mean, seriously, at the end of the day? No, it didn't. Not at all. Um, I guess I was, if I was a little surprised, it was at the, the, the kind of the, the deluge. It has been around, I mean, I, the first 20 years of my CBS career, the sexual harassment I experienced was constant, and um, I had to keep it completely quiet because there was nobody to go to. There was nobody to appeal to. There was no recourse. Some of it was from within the, the company. Some of it uh, was from people I covered. Um, unbelievably strange things happened. And and there was a, a, a long history of sexism. And in, in, I would say, the first half of my CBS career, um, it was a question of... of um, uh, surviving it because so many women experienced it and didn't survive it, and you know it was it was bottling up your suffering and just keeping on without letting somebody destroy me, and uh, there were consequences if you tried to to um, fight what what was going on. And again, it wasn't all sexual harassment; it was sexism as well. And I have to say that. For the most part, that climate, that culture, all of it has changed dramatically. And I I really don't think that it, younger people in network television experience it in the same way these days. And for that, I thank the At Me Too movement. But it's been really interesting to see the consequences. Um, there, there's a point for me that I think that that it needs to be more nuanced now that the the catharsis has taken place. Um, and I worry that it'll go back to the old ways, but I also worry that, that um, the baby can be thrown out with the bathwater. Um, and that isn't constructive. I think that there has to be a, a long, serious, constant, constructive effort to change cultures. And and speaking of culture as a last point on this, because this has just been so rich, ageism, has that been an issue at all? Because this is really turning out to be a thing. And this has been brought up by many of my colleagues who are really looking into the metrics and statistics on ageism. Uh, which obviously collides with um, sexism as well. Have you, what is your thought? I haven't experienced it. Um, I know it exists. I know it's rampant. I saw it with my mother. 
One ah. of the reasons I think why I um, am the the person I am. Um, my father died when I was nine. Um, my mother was left a widow at, at the age of forty, and she had to support us. And she had pretty good. Uh, well, when my father was alive, they were in business together, and their success was related to both of their skills. After my father died, my mother had to use the skills that she had and the experience she had before she got married as the basis for her career. And for for a while, she was able to go along on a parallel track with men her age. Um, She was in, her field was personnel and labor relations. She had worked for department stores when, after my father died, well, her first major job after my father died was as the personnel director of a department store. And that was based on her experience before she got married. And um, as time went on, the men around her were able to advance and to uh, make more money. And her career and the women at her level essentially plateaued and began to decline. And I saw the difficulty my mother had over the rest of her career um, trying desperately to, to, to just survive and make a living. And it was very clear that this was not because of her experience or skill level. It had to do with sexism and ageism. And when you combined the two, it was, it was very, very difficult. And um, she worked for a company that at one point um, for a number of years I won't name the company, but all the men were staff and all the women were considered private contractors doing exactly the same work. And uh, that had a profound effect on their benefits, their ability to to, uh, build a reserve for retirement because they were not eligible under those uh, conditions for a pension where the men were and so on. And, And I saw that growing up. And it was sort of like a hammer on my head. And and my mother's advice to me was always, whatever you do, be in a position to make a living so that you can be independent and you don't have to ask anybody for money and that you can survive financially, whether you are alone, whether you have a husband, whether you have children, who, who whatever your circumstances are. And... Um, that's been ringing in my head for my whole life. And fortunately, working at CBS Sunday Morning, which is a really lovely place to work, um, and it's a show where we like each other and where there's very, very little turnover. Uh, there are people who work on our show who who were working there when the show went on the air in 1979. Um, but um, there's a respect for our staff, and there is a, a, a genuine affection. And fortunately in my field, I mean, I, you look at people like Leslie Stahl at 60 Minutes, Leslie's 80. Um, all You had guys like um, Morley Safer and, and, and Mike Wallace and Andy Rooney who went on and on and on until they were in their high 80s or you know pushing 90. Um, and I thought, well, I wonder if there's going to be that longevity for women. And Leslie Stahl is, is 80, and she's still there and still hanging in there and holding her own admirably. And you look at NBC, you look at 
Andrea Mitchell, who's not young, and she is one of the most highly respected people at NBC. And she's up there. I mean, it, there are a few men, but not many. And it, it, it seems that at least in this highly visible field, there are some women who are, are able to be there as examples. And I hope that that um, creates a norm, at, at le- or at least creates a sense of possibility. Because if you see people who are women and older, and they are competent, then you it doesn't seem to be an oddity. But it takes um, it takes uh, a climate where that's accepted, and it also takes a lot of work. Uh, I'm just sitting here inhaling this, Martha, um, because really, at the end of the day, who else do you hear it from? And this is one of the reasons why we all wanted to ask you these these questions, uh, because number one, you're incredibly articulate, duh, um, it's kind of what you do. Uh, and two, you're very transparent and, and also ridiculously authentic. And I think that we just were attracted to that. We want to hear more of that, especially with regard to what's going on um, you know, in, a, in our lives today as women. All I can say is that what we just heard, you know, over the course of this podcast, is not just, you know, what it was like to write this incredibly amazing book, um, When Harry Met Minnie. And for all of you out there, just hit Amazon and just Google it. You could find it in five seconds and, and just grab this book. I think it's an incredible gift to self is, is really what it is. Um, so when Harry met Minnie, so we started out with this beautiful, you know, multiple platforms of love, life and loss, and look where we ended up. How cool is that? We really did a marvelous uh, tour de force looking at all things, your life, because really this was partially autobiographical for you this beautiful book. We got a slice of Martha, you know, going down the streets in New York. Um, you obviously love the city and been there for Lord knows how many years. And uh, it was it was almost like we were there. And so on behalf of our marvelous podcast audience and everyone else who's going to be listening to this in general, um, thank you for writing the book. And thank you for making that an entree into your life. And um, finally, thank you for sharing both your wit and your wisdom uh, for all of us. Well, thank you. It's been a pleasure. Um, I have to say, along the line of what we've been talking about, I am kind of proud that I I have published my first book at the age of 73. Yay! (laughs) Absolutely. Well, no, I mean, that's one of the reasons why my eyebrows hit the ceiling when I saw it. I said, whoa, wait a minute now. Was she writing other books that I missed? Because, you know, as I said, I'm a fangirl. And uh, there it was. And I saw, that's one of the reasons why I asked you why you wrote it. It was like, okay. Because when people say, well, after the age of X, you know, I mean, come on now, really? No, you you wrote something that was a, a gift for everybody. Um, it was beautiful. Well, and thank, um, you. thank you. <laughs> it's much. never too late. Never, ever, ever too late. So Martha, once again, on behalf of the entire Herb Podcast team, 
Thank you. And everyone out there, I want you to run to iTunes right now, rate and review the show. I want to hear from you because I'm Dr. Pam Peek, host of the Her Podcast. Please follow me on Facebook at Dr. Pam Peek or Twitter and Instagram at Pam Peek MD. And remember to catch every single episode of the Her Podcast on iTunes or Radio MD. Thanks for listening today and please stay safe and stay well.